I used to have to drink just to go upstairs to take a shower. If I was going to go to a car wash, I had to drink a whole bunch before I go to the car wash. Everything involved drinking in my life. How am I going to take that away? How is that going to go somewhere else? I felt that there was no way that I could get sober. Even at my darkest days, I thought that sobriety was not a part of my life, no matter what the death was. The death was the only way that I was going to feel better. Welcome to Voices of Recovery. I'm your host, Jackie Danziger. So far this season, we focus primarily on young people whose use involved a variety of substances. But this week, we're focusing on Joe, who's more of a textbook alcoholic. Joe is a broad, tall guy with a deep voice, a total Oregonian man's man. As a kid, he was a little shy perhaps, but a natural born athlete. He played multiple sports and had a ton of friends. But beneath the appearance of the social jock was a lonely child in a home with emotionally unavailable parents. My whole childhood felt very alone. And, and drinking and drugs kind of made that feeling go away. I didn't know how to talk to anybody. I wasn't raised to talk to anybody. Um, I didn't know how to express my own emotions. I didn't know how to say anything. I didn't do anything. So any interactions I had with my brother, with my family, anything was very superficial. Joe was close with his stepdad, but felt pretty isolated overall, particularly from his mother. When they separated, I thought that I was doing my mom a favor and trying not to be a burden to her and telling her that I was going to go live with my stepfather. And she didn't stop me. My mom never expresses any emotion. She never, it was like having a robot for a mother. He craved positive attention from his family, but rarely got it. So when his brother introduced him to alcohol at 13, he was into it. He could shake off his shyness, talk openly, and just be free. Plus, it didn't seem to have an effect on sports and academics at first. The sense of accomplishment I did have was probably about a year before I graduated. I really put my mind to things. I did everything I could do, and I got straight A's. The response I got from that was absolutely nothing. I was hoping there would just be smiles and hugs, anything. Yeah. And any, any emotion whatsoever is what I was after, I think. Because I don't, I never got that. So there was no praise. There was no, you did a good job, Joe, way to go. There was nothing. So my response from that was, I don't care anymore. And when I went to go live with him, my drinking and I smoked marijuana, it became more and more rampant and school became harder to go to. Sports became almost non-existent. I basically completely stopped going to school and got to the point where I was flunking every class. And I thought there's, I got to do something. I need to do something. And I contacted my mom and said, I probably need to go to treatment. The sole reason was because I, I wanted to graduate high school. And I thought if I keep continuing this, I'm going to flunk out. I'm not going to graduate high school. And I went to treatment. Joe may have gone to treatment young, but his experience was far from what we saw in our Ossipot episodes. He didn't leave treatment with a network of sober, supportive friends, and he wasn't working a program. He just 
stopped drinking, and went back to his old life. So his goal when he left treatment was to return to sports and finish high school strong. Things did not go exactly as planned. I did not go back to playing football. I quit basketball, which was my favorite sport, because one day my coach challenged me. One day before the season started, he said, do you really want to play for this team? And I, I took that as, I don't know, like it was a threat. You know, and maybe, maybe it was the first time I heard something like that. He was, he was testing me is what he was doing, and I wasn't ready for his test, and I wasn't ready to answer what he had to say, and I think I just fell back on what I knew, and that was to quit. Joe eked out a D average and graduated by the skin of his teeth. He was ready to move on to the next stage of his life. And actually, he started his first job on the last day of school. He went to work with his dad and his brother Jeff. Out of his whole family, Jeff was the only person in Joe's life that he felt really close to. And then I moved in uh, with my brother and some friends, and we just, that's all we did. We partied, we, we ate, and we got up and went to work, and then we just did it all over again. I felt really close to him. Um, he was probably the closest thing that I had to a friend or family or anything. And we would drink together, and we played, we played basketball together. We played on city leagues, and we continued kind of playing sports and having fun. And, and just, you know, as long as we could get, get up and go to work the next day, everything was fine. Over the next five years, Joe's drinking escalated. But it didn't really seem to matter. Sure, he drank daily, but so did his friends and all of his brothers. The behavior felt normal. And there were no significant consequences during this period. In his own life, that is. One of my brothers was getting sick, and he was hiding it from us, and we, we had no idea. And, but my father knew something of it, and my father decided to go over to his house and force him to go to the doctor. And he explains it to me later that he went upstairs into the bedroom where uh, Brett was, and he walked in there, and Brett was turning yellow. Um, I guess his body was shutting down. And he explained to me that Brett had an alcoholic seizure right at that moment, and he died. I don't know what his symptoms were. I didn't know he was sick. I had no idea. The first I heard of it is when my father told me that he had died. It was, it was, it was sad. It was shocking. But I remember the first thing that went through my mind was he could not drink like I could drink. His body shut down and mine didn't. It was a very selfish thought, but that was one of the first things that went through my mind was, I can still drink. I can still go on, I can still drink, I can still have fun, I can still party. Unfortunately, he could not. After the funeral, things went back to normal. Which is to say, they went back to not talking about what was really going on. Joe's emotional isolation only increased. From that day forward, it was just, it, w it was a brother that died in our family that we didn't talk about anymore. That the family just shoved down deep inside, and that was it. So even more going to holidays now. Now we're missing somebody that was there, but yet we won't say a word about him. 
I just, I thought it was kind of weird, but other than that, it was, I reverted back to what I know. And that was exactly what my family taught me is that to is just shut up. Don't be emotional about it. That's what we do. Joe didn't quit drinking after his brother's death, but he was motivated to at least attempt to settle down. He was getting tired of going to bars and drinking with friends. And throughout all of this, he'd been seeing a woman off and on. They moved in together, and she would eventually become the mother of his two kids. But I asked him, as someone who had difficulty expressing his feelings, how did you build a relationship? It was completely a drunk relationship. We were, um, she drank too, quite a bit. And that relationship was fully, it was alcohol-induced, is all it was. I can probably count on both hands the amount of times that I was not drinking in those 11 years that I was with her. It was the only, it became the only way I knew how to live. It became the only way that I knew how to not hurt physically. And it became the only way that I knew how to express myself. And so that that ended up being what our relationship was completely based upon. It wasn't about love. It was about convenience for me. And it was about me not, it was about me having a home to go to and someone else to go home to. And then we built a family with two kids and it was completely dysfunctional. When it came to emotions, Joe only knew how to bury them. And unfortunately, that didn't just apply to negative feelings. Without the skills to express himself, there were a lot of positive things that went unsaid. Well, they always brought me joy. Um, I feel like I neglected them because alcohol was first in my life. Now, their mother took care of them more than I did. They were, they were not my first priority. I, I feel I was a, not a good father to them. They were, again, they were secondary to me. Joe's relationship with his kids wasn't the only one affected by his drinking. Me and my brother Jeff had kind of a falling out. He would come over all the time and we would continue our drinking ways and he would come and drink with us. And, and I don't know, it was the weirdest thing in the world. One day all of a sudden he couldn't drink anymore like he could in the past. Where he would, and I mean that by he would drink one beer and he would be completely drunk. He couldn't walk, he couldn't talk, he would stumble, he would slur. And then he would continue to drink as much as he would in the past, and it would become unbearable for me. And I couldn't deal with him like I had to babysit him. Was there any part of you that was concerned for his health? No, I was more concerned with myself. Very selfish. I didn't, it didn't, to me, death and health, even though I had already lost a brother, wasn't anything that I was concerned about because we were so young. And I didn't get it, it's like all of a sudden my drinking partner went away from me and I can't deal with this anymore. And I told him after, I don't know, maybe after about a year of this, I said, you have to leave my house and you cannot come back. I go, I don't want you around my family. I can't have you here like this anymore. I can't deal with you. And all in, in reality, I, it, was, it was disrupting my drinking is what it was doing. And so I told him to leave and I said, don't come back. And he did. He left. And, and what I didn't know was everybody else had told him that, too, to get out of their lives. And I told him to leave, and he did. And I didn't, I didn't see him for the next year. 
Jeff got a job as a long-haul truck driver making trips across the country. He was in California, I guess, and he went and he parked his truck, I believe, at a truck stop. And he was there for, I believe, the truck was there for a couple of days and his company was trying to get a hold of him and they couldn't get a hold of him. You know, they had the GPS and knew where the truck was. So they called the police department over there and said, would you just go do a wellness check on this truck and see, you know, is it still in one piece or whatever? And apparently they went and checked on the truck, opened the door and he was slumped over inside and he was dead. He had um, bought a bunch of vodka and a bunch of beer and he was in that truck for about three or four days um, in the sun. And um, he drank himself to death. And I always, I always thought that we would come back together and I would say, I'm sorry. And we would hug and life would go on, and I never got a chance to say I was sorry. I was devastated. I was truly broke. I know how he drinks, and I know he sat in that truck, and he drank every ounce of, every ounce of alcohol that he had as quick as he could so that he couldn't feel the pain anymore because he was in so much pain. And a lot of people think that he didn't mean to do it. And I don't believe that. I, I truly believe he went, he went away to die. And the second that I told him to get out of my life, that was it for him. And I remember when I was told that he died. It was with my children's mother. And she said, go into the bedroom. I got to tell you something. And she came in and she told me. And I was leaned up against the wall. And I just slid down the wall. And a scream came from my mouth that I had never heard before. And I've never heard since. And I could not believe that, that he was dead. And the amount of guilt that I felt and sadness at that moment, it was overwhelming. At that point, what did you do with those feelings? I drank, and I drank a lot. I tried to hide them, and, and it just got worse for me. With my family, it was once again, shove the emotions away. We're not gonna talk about it too much. It was, I mean, that night I went and saw my family. I had to tell my mom and I don't remember her crying. His family's cycle of denial and avoidance continued. But in the weeks that followed, he couldn't shake the feeling that he was responsible for his brother's death. With the guilt came more drinking, which led to more guilt. There was so much guilt. There was so much shame. I felt like I killed my brother. 
my drinking tripled and I'm not exaggerating when I say it tripled. I was, I was so far into it. I was so deep into this disease that I, I didn't even have control of it anymore. Joe's already tenuous relationship with the mother of his children fell apart, which meant that he had to find somewhere else to live, and the kids wouldn't be coming with him. And it was very sad for me to say goodbye to him that last night that I spent the night with them. We laid in our bed. Um, it was me and my daughter and my son, and I told them that, you know, Daddy's not going to be living with you anymore. I just told them that, you know, things didn't work out between me and their mother, and everything was going to be okay, and they were very sad, and they cried, and it made me very, very sad. Next morning, I got up, and I, I basically had about 20 hangers worth of clothes, and I put them in my car, and I left, and that was it. Joe's story illustrates how alcoholism is a disease of loneliness. His whole childhood had been defined by feeling emotionally isolated. As an adult, he cut ties with the one family member he was close to, and now that he was living alone, left completely to his own devices, his entire life began to revolve around drinking. I drank a fifth a night on work nights. I would get up in the morning and I would throw up. I would go to work and I would somehow get through the day. And I was a manager at the store at that time. And I would start sending people home a little bit early around 4.45 so that right at 5 o'clock there would be no one, nobody sitting there. And once 5 o'clock hit, I would pull out a pint in my desk and I would chug that as fast as I could. And within about 45 seconds, I could get that thing down. That was just so I could get into my car and drive home and drink as much of a fifth as I could before I passed out that night. On the weekends, I would drink the second my eyes opened. If it was four in the morning, if it was five in the morning, if it was seven in the morning, the second I woke up, I would go downstairs and I would start drinking. On the weekends, I would drink a half gallon on a Saturday. I would drink a half gallon on Sunday. And this cycle continued for five years. I asked Joe if he remembered what his body felt like when he was drinking that much. My heart felt like it was pounding out of my chest. My body ached. I was, I was hung. I, I was hung over every morning so bad. And, and I don't even know if hung over is the word. It was, I was physically withdrawing because I was not drinking on those work days. It was, it was pain. All the fun was gone. I was, um, I, at that point I'm living on my own. I actually, uh, I have a house. I bought a house for the first time. I don't know how I managed that, but I bought a house and I'm living by myself in a house. And this, this happened during that five year stretch of drinking like that. And so then it became very easy, easy to become isolated and just do my drinking in my house because I was embarrassed if anybody knew the amount of alcohol I was drinking at that point. Absolutely would have been embarrassed. That becomes my life for five years. And I, uh, I reek of alcohol every morning when I go to work. I come home and I... I drink and I pass out 
and I get up and I do it the next morning and that's what I did every day. You know, I used to watch this show called If You Really Knew Me. It was about these these couple counselors that went to a high school and they would they would pick out a bunch of people from all different um, you'd get your jocks, your you know, your your the pretty girls, the the nerds. I mean, just all different groups and get them all together in the gymnasium and sit them with each other. And they'd have to sit there and they would say, if you really knew me, and they would have to say something. And it was the coolest show in the world to me for some reason, because these people were talking and they were spilling their guts and they were like, going, I'm like, oh my God. The show aired on MTV in 2010. And if you haven't seen it, imagine The Breakfast Club meets the real world. The teen reality show takes place in high schools across the country, all participating in Challenge Day this event that's designed to address barriers and break down stereotypes. I watched some of the show, and I can see why Joe liked it so much. It's kind of like a big AA meeting, where everyone is forced to finally talk about the things that they've been bottling up inside. Things that most teenagers, most people, would be terrified to share with their peers. And I remember I would go home, and I would sit there and watch that, and I would do it with them. And then when the commercial came, it was my turn. And I would say, if you really knew me. And I would start saying all these things. And the only conversation I ever had with people was to that TV. I actually wrote them down. I can read them for I you if that. you want. Yeah. Um, and I would cry. I would just go, if you, if you really knew me, you would know that I've always been really shy my whole life. That growing up was a struggle for me. My family has always been separated. I never really had a father in my life, and at times I didn't have a brother either. There was always a sense of loss lingering inside of me. I drank to forget, and I drank to not be shy. If you really knew me, you would know that as I became a parent, the world got one of the worst ones it could possibly get. No child deserves to feel like I did growing up, and no child deserves me as a father figure. I truly feel like a complete failure to them, but they don't see it yet because they're too young. This haunts me every day, and the only way to make it go away is to drink and forget. If you really knew me, you would know that I don't want to live my life this way anymore. I'm tired of guilt and shame, I'm tired of living to drink instead of just living to live. I'm tired of physically being sick every day. And I'm really tired of lying to everybody that matters to me. I'm tired of being in this world, and I wish I was no longer in it. I wish one day I would just not wake up. If you really knew me, you would know that my brother's death affected me in ways that I can't even describe. So many feelings, so much guilt, that it's almost unbearable. It made me at times just want to be done with my life. I wanted to drink so much that my body would shut down and no longer go on. I wanted the pain to stop, and that was the only solution I knew. If you really knew me, you would know that I really am a good person at heart, that I followed the wrong path in life, and that I finally know what's wrong with me, but I don't feel I will ever get better. I don't see a solution to my problem. All I see for the future is each day being darker than the last. Those are some of the things that I would say to that TV.
Joe had been staying at his mom's house in the beachside town of Lincoln City. His two children were not far, and the plan was to spend Christmas together, one day with his kids and one day with his mom. This plan quickly unraveled and was reduced to Joe handing off unwrapped gifts to his kids the day before Christmas Eve and then abandoning all hope of a happy holiday with his family. So I'm in Lincoln City, and that's about two hours away from here. It's Christmas time. And I get up the next morning and I do the thing that I do is I drink the second my eyes open. But I come to this conclusion that actually my eyes were getting blurry that I can't drive home. I can't go home for Christmas Eve. I can't do this because I'm too drunk and it's kind of weird, but I can't do this. So I decide not to. And I didn't call my mom. Same thing. Got up the next morning. I couldn't. Started drinking. And I come to the conclusion that I cannot drive home. Go through the same thing. I didn't call him. I drank all day. I got up the next morning. Now, this is, I remember vividly, it was Sunday at that point. And I have totally screwed over my family for Christmas and I haven't told anybody. They may have thought I was dead. I don't know. And leading up to that, I wanted to stop drinking. I wanted help. I didn't know how to ask. I didn't know what to do. I didn't think my life could go on without drinking. So that Sunday, I'm sitting there, same scenario. I'm drinking first thing in the morning uh it's getting about halfway through the day and i'm thinking oh my god i'm gonna i gotta go to work the next day and i thought here's my idea i got a plan i came up with a plan my plan is i'm gonna leave my mom's beach house i'm gonna get a hotel in lincoln city and i'm gonna drink as much as i can possibly put down my throat for one week and either i die or I make it out of it, and I will have screwed everything up so bad by that point that I will have to get help and somehow try to get sober. I die or I live. So I packed my stuff, and I went and got a hotel, and I went to, you know, I'm all, I'm all happy now because I have a plan, and I'm actually happy because I feel that it's going to end one way or the other, and I was happy about that. And so I'm all excited. I go to the liquor store and I actually get a cart. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie with Nicolas Cage called Leaving Las Vegas. Well, that was me. I'm in the liquor store with this cart full of booze. And so Joe began his week-long bender, lost in his own desperation and hopelessness. I was drinking. I was journaling. I was looking in the mirror. I hated what I saw in the mirror. I ended up going somewhere and having my head shaved. I mean, I was just a mess. I looked like a complete mess. I found some dude on the side of the street and paid him money to drive me around. I stole a mail truck and drove it around the town of Lincoln City. Got caught for it, got let go. I got mixed up with a bunch of MMA fighters and we were all practicing in the middle of a street. I was paying them money and letting me hit them as hard as I could to see if it hurt them. It was just, it was chaos. It was absolute chaos. I got to the point where I couldn't, I started to not be able to see and, and my eyes were so red and I couldn't stop scratching them and they became very blurry and I remember for a stretch of about eight hours, I could not see. And I was on the floor 
and I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand on my own two legs and I could crawl. And I remember crawling to the toilet and throwing up and I wasn't eating anything. And it just, it just hurt. And there was just, I mean, there was pain that I hadn't felt before, physical pain. And I thought that was it. I thought, this is it. Did you think about your brothers during that time? No, no. I thought of only myself. I thought this is this is not where I wanted it to go. This is I didn't hope that it would be here. I hoped that I would make it that week, and this was only Wednesday. If Joe's initial plan was to hide out, drink, and see what happens, his second phase was to break the radio silence and let someone somewhere know his whereabouts. I was really looking forward to Thursday because Thursday was the day I was going to call somebody. I had not called anybody and let them know where I was at. I didn't call my parents. I didn't call the mother of my children. They thought I was dead. They were looking for me in Lincoln City. So Thursday was the day I was going to call somebody and say, dude, I'm alive. Here's what I'm doing. This is my plan. And I, but I had to make it, I had to make it to Thursday. And I thought I was literally going to die on Wednesday. I thought Wednesday was it, but I came to Thursday somehow. And I called my boss. I go, this is what I'm doing. I go, here's where I'm at in my life. And he sat there and he goes, you know, I feel the same way sometimes. And we sat there and we talked for like an hour. And for the first time during that week, I felt okay. I actually felt like, oh my God, I'm just, I might be able to make this. And he told me of some struggles that he was going through. And I told him the struggles I was going through. It was actually like a little AA meeting almost. It was like one person telling another person what's going on in their lives. In the list of key figures in a person's recovery journey, employers follow closely behind parents and spouses as the people most frequently tasked with helping a person get into treatment. There's even a chapter in the AA Big Book titled To the Employer, and it reinforces the notion that, just like the threat of divorce, jail, or death, the threat of being fired from a job won't be enough to get someone sober. Dealing with an employee who has substance abuse issues is complicated. Fortunately for Joe, he found just the empathy and support he needed in his boss. And he told me, he goes, you have a job when you get back. He goes, it may not be the same one that you were in, but we're not going to get rid of you. And I go, I want to go to treatment when I get back. I go, that's the only thing that I can do here is I have to go to treatment. I have to stop drinking. He goes, I will set everything up. I go, well, here's my plan. I go, I'm going to call my friend after this and have him come pick me up on Saturday. And I want to go to church on Sunday morning for some reason. And then I want to go to treatment. And he goes, okay, I'll be waiting at your house Sunday. So Thursday was like, it was like the best day in the world for me there. And I really felt hope for the first time. And I mean hope for the first time for the last 10 years that this may be different. He made it through that last night. And the next day, carried out the rest of the plan. His friend met up with him and brought him home, where he got a good night's sleep. I got up, I went to church the next morning. I thought I was gonna die because I didn't drink. And I was going through some serious withdrawals. I just, I made it through it. And, but I remember sitting there and there was a peace inside of me that I had made it there. I just wanted to be sitting there. 
and I felt like everything was going to be all right at that point. I felt like everything was going to change from that moment forward, and it did. Church felt restorative, but there was one more critical part of the plan, getting into treatment. Joe returned to his house, where his boss was waiting for him. I was shaking so hard that he called the treatment facility and they told him to go buy me some booze right now and get him to start drinking because you cannot bring him in like that or because if your blood pressure is so high or whatever, they will not admit you. You'll have to go to the emergency room. So I had to drink more, uh, which I wasn't opposed to. So I drank about a pint and then I went to treatment and I have been sober ever since. Long-term heavy alcohol consumption can wreck vital organs like the liver and, over time, create a dangerous physical dependence. Alcohol depresses neurological function in the brain. Remove the alcohol too suddenly, and the brain can go haywire, causing seizures and even heart failure. Going cold turkey is unsafe and should not be attempted. As counterintuitive as it sounds, the advice to keep drinking until he could be safely detoxed may have saved Joe's life. Joe had been to treatment nearly 20 years earlier and thought he knew what to expect. However, detoxing as a teenager is considerably less intense than detoxing as an adult with 20 years of heavy drinking under your belt. I think my expectations was it was just going to be a bunch of people sitting around in a circle with the counselor spilling their guts out and that was it. And, and what I found when I got there was, no, I was in a hospital bed making sure I didn't die before I was able to go and start actually talking to people and there was a detox period and it was different and I was very, I was scared, I was nervous. All I had knew for the past 27 years was to drink. With the alcohol out of his system, it was time to move into the residential program. This presented new and yet very familiar challenges. Very scary. It was like all of a sudden, it was like starting high school for the first time. It was like, there's a whole bunch of people I don't know. Now I got to go intermingle with these people and we got to talk and we got to do this. And then we got to have class together and we got to open up and we got to, and it was like, it was, it was horrific for me. Absolutely horrific. For someone who has never felt okay to be in their own skin, this was a very hard challenge for me. I was afraid to open up. I was afraid to talk. And now that I wasn't drunk, how was I going to talk? I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to open up. And at the beginning, I didn't open up. But then it felt good to talk. It felt good to write some things down about my brother and express it. And it felt good to get some things off my chest. And, and And then I started feeling like those guys that had been there for three or four weeks, I started feeling what I thought they felt like, and things started to click. Joe had finally found a place and a group of people to start opening up and expressing his feelings. The counselors addressed his communication issues head on, and Joe responded immediately. I think it was pretty simple to me. What I heard from them was, you need to just say something. You need to let it out. You need to express what you feel. It wasn't too much anything exactly what somebody said to me one day, what a counselor said to me, but it was just, you got to open up for the first time in your life. You got to be free of what's in there, what's holding you back. Do you remember when you actually started to practice that? From that day forward, 
from being an inpatient and, and, and being in there about a week and a half into it that day forward. We've heard it many times, but it's worth repeating. Recovery usually takes longer than 30 days. There are things to learn at each stage of treatment, and the transition from one to another is often as scary as it is exciting. So the 30-day program, when I had to leave that, it was like, oh my God, I do not want to leave this. This is, this is it. This is the greatest thing in the whole world for me. I don't want to leave. I don't want to go to the next program. I want to just stay in this one forever. And then I get to the next program, and I go through that, and I felt the same way about that one. This is, this is why I came here. It was this program and this program only. This is why I'm here. This has helped me the most. This, this has helped me more than inpatient treatment. So I get out of that. I go to the next program, the recovery support, and I'm in there saying the same thing, going, this is the best thing for me right here. It was just a progression of classes, and every one actually had a purpose, served a purpose, and I fell in love with every one of them. And I didn't want to leave the recovery support, but they made me go. It was actually going there once a week. You know, you, you go through the first two programs and then you get to recovery support. And I think recovery support helps you learn how to live life. And when you have questions and when you have doubts and when you have problems, and even when things are good and you want to talk about it, you can do it in recovery support. And that's why going there once a week for two years helped me more than anything that Serenity Lane had to offer. It's worth pointing out that that last program Joe mentioned, recovery support, is completely free for Serenity Lane patients who complete all prescribed phases of treatment. And it's an incredible tool for staying sober past residential. However, even with these weekly meetings, sobriety is not all sunshine and roses. You know, I went through my first two years of recovery was miserable. I hated it. You know, because I still didn't, I still was very uncomfortable in my own skin. And I was very uncomfortable going to AA meetings. I hated AA meetings. I hated everything about AA meetings. I hated going there. I didn't want to get called on because I was, I was like, you would hear somebody talk and they would say the most amazing thing in the whole world. And you would just listen to them and, and I would be in awe and it would be like, oh my God, do not call me. I have nothing to say that's going to be worth anything of what he just said right there. And that is how I thought. So, but Serenity Lane people say you have to go to these meetings and you have to tell us how many meetings you go to. And if you don't go to meetings, we're going to talk about why you don't go to meetings. So I would go to these meetings and I would hate every minute of it. Funny story, at one of the meetings, a, a gal raised her hand and wanted to say something in the announcements saying that, you know, she's sleeping on a concrete floor at a woman's shelter or something and she needs a bed. And I said, I, I got a bed here. I'll give you a bed. Let me give you a bed. Here's a bed. And a year later, we're in an AA meeting and she sees me and she comes over and she says, you look miserable. I go, I hate everything about this. I hate sobriety. I go, sobriety's not fun like I thought it would be. I go, it's even worse because I can't drink and drown it away. I have to live in it now. And she goes, okay, well, I'm going to sit here and just sit with you then. And then she, we kind of became friends and she took me to a different meeting and she introduced me to people and she, I would listen to her speak. And, and, and from that day forward, my perception of AA changed and I opened up more and I talked more and I liked AA meetings 
And that happened while I was in recovery. And from that day forward, my recovery got better. I wasn't as miserable anymore. Joe has come a long way since his initial resistance to AA. Today, he works as an AA coordinator at a local prison and says that these are some of the most powerful meetings he's ever experienced. I feel like I'm helping somebody, which is what I really want to do, is I just want to help people. I just want somebody to say, I always wanted somebody to say, it's going to be okay, Joe. It's going to be okay. Here's, here's what happened to me, and here's where I'm at today. It's going to be okay. And I want to be able to tell that to people too. You know, I want to, I want, I want to, I want to save somebody's life if I can by my words. What Joe just expressed there is pretty much the mission statement of our show. When people share the stories of the stumbles they've experienced along the way, it reminds us that we are all works in progress and that there's always hope. The rule of recovery is that you have to give it away to keep it. This is what Joe found. The more he helped others, the better he felt. He also found that the journey of repairing and rebuilding only began with putting down the drink. Joe delved into his sober life, making good use of opportunities and tools. He sought some professional therapy, worked a 12-step program, even dipped his toe into the online dating world. It wasn't easy, and he wrestled with a lot of old fears and ideas, but he kept going. I think I had a lot more confidence now and it was way different than high school. I mean, although I was nervous and scared, I still knew that, hey, I'm a good person now, and I don't drink, and actually this is the true me, and I'm okay, and I've gone through this therapy, still a good person inside. And there was that confidence right there, and I've never had that confidence before. And it was a good thing to have that, and it took me over 40 years of my life to get that. Clearly, the work started to pay off. Because a few years ago, he met someone. I met her online, actually. And uh, the first time we met, it was, it was the greatest thing in the world. And I couldn't believe that she walked into the restaurant and we just sat there and we ate dinner and we drank coffee and we talked. And she's very supportive of AA and my program and what I do today. And knows that the sober me is the one that is going to keep us together. In fact, when I interviewed him, Joe had just gotten married. It was a day that I never thought would ever come to me, ever, and it did. I always wanted to do a crazy, funky dance at a wedding that you see on the videos all the time. That was a dream for me. How did you develop that dream? When I first got sober, when I was in my house, being by myself, being isolated, being alone in my thoughts, I was Googling stuff and I saw somebody do this dance and I, and I sat there and I watched it and I watched another dance and I watched another dance and about four hours later, I probably watched every wedding dance there was and I said, you know, one day if I ever get married, I'm going to do that and I'm going to remember this moment right now of how good it made me feel. And so I, I said from that day forward, if I ever get married, I'm doing this. And then I almost didn't do it. And she talked me into it. And I told her why. And so she goes, we're doing this. And we did it. And it was amazing. What you're hearing is the audio from that wedding dance. And it is an undeniably joyful video. It's also the kind of fun that Joe never imagined having when he was first getting sober. 
My first day of treatment of inpatient, that night when I went to bed, the only thing I could think of is how will I ever go on a tropical vacation if I cannot drink? Well, I just did. I just went to the Philippines for my honeymoon and I had the best time of my life, sober. I remember everything, absolutely everything. And I did fun things and I've never done that before. I've never been out of the country. And that's what you do. You just, you get through what you don't think is possible and you let it happen and you do the work and it, it sucks and it hurts and it's painful. But with all that, there's an upside because there's happiness and there's freedom and there's hope. And I know that feeling when you are at your rock bottom and there's nothing else that you think you could do, but there is. And all you got to do is listen to somebody else and just keep your mind open because I did. And it took me a while to realize that it took me a long time to realize that. And, and, and being able to talk, being able to talk to where somebody's actually listening to you is one of the most amazing things. Recovery is about gaining freedom, freedom from chaos, freedom to express yourself and the freedom to do things that you've always wanted to do. Joe's transformation is remarkable. He has a partner, he's rebuilding his family, and he helps countless other alcoholics by sharing his story and dedicating himself to service. From the man who sat alone talking to his TV, to the groom who danced up a storm at his wedding, he is proof that recovery is possible and well worth the work. Voices of Recovery was created by Monique and Jackie Danziger and is produced by Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers. Writing and production assistance by Monique Danziger. James Tyson is our production coordinator and script supervisor. Our show is edited by me, Jackie Danziger. Our theme and much of the music in this episode was composed by Sammy Gallo with additional tracks by George Polly. Thank you, as always, to everyone at Serenity Lane who helps make the show possible. A special thanks to Bill Ward and Lane Frambees for their help connecting us with some of the alumni featured this season. Like us on Facebook and Instagram for teasers and episode extras. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're currently listening so that you can get new episodes every Tuesday in your feed. If you want to support our work or help others find the show, please take a minute to rate and review us. There's a link for that in the show notes. We'll see you next week for more stories of rock bottoms, moments of clarity, and life after addiction. <laughs>